0: You are now listening to the Purpose
1: Edits Podcast. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to have the ability to self-assess, and not everybody has the ability to self-assess. You don't necessarily have to like school to be
2: successful in school. You just have to know how to play the game, that's it, and get through it.
1: Welcome to the Purpose Edits Podcast. This is a short yet powerful conversation designed to help you do three things that can ultimately change the trajectory of your life. One, discover your purpose, two, walk in your purpose, and three, ultimately fulfill your purpose. I am your host, Coach Vic, and I'm joined, as always, by my lifelong friend, my brother, the educator, Dr. Shane Calhoun. What up? What up, homie? How you doing, man? Coolin', big dog. How you doing? Man, I'm all right, man. I'm all right. It's a good day today. Uh, I don't even know what day of the week it is. Stuff's starting to blur together.
2: Yeah, I get that. I just took my hat off and saw myself in the camera. And <sighs> put my hat back on real quick. <laughs> man, I was I
1: was gonna say something, but you know, I feel yeah. it ain't my place to judge, man. Nah, it ain't,
2: man. It ain't. Um, yeah, these days are running together, big time. Uh we back to school on Monday, so uh, we're gonna see how this goes. I haven't man. been in front of a class since I told. I think I told you the last episode since like March thirteenth.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be weird, right? Very. Do they have the classroom set up in uh, any particular way to try to help protect the students? And the teachers?
2: Yeah, we got social distancing things. We got to turn in our um, seating charts. We, we got to know exactly where every kid is sitting, six feet apart, da 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 you know, yeah, we'll see.
1: That's going to be tough. That's going to be tough. Well, Very I, much so. I know a lot of people in getting back to school, getting back to work, they are adjusting to their new norms, some of those new protocols in order in order for, uh, I guess, people to help people be safe, um, but we won't dive too deep into that today. Today, we are joined by a a longtime classmate, uh, <laughs> a friend, uh, someone who's seen us come up, grow up uh, from from our former selves. Um, hopefully she, she, she don't think too, too bad of us. <laughs> <laughs> to, as I, as I talk here, I'm trying to remember if I bullied her or not. <laughs> and now I was never bullied. <laughs> okay, good. good. <laughs> <laughs> listen, your mom wasn't going to have that anyway. Uh, <laughs> Listen, for our audience, let me let me give you a quick intro on, on who we're talking to today. So first off, we are talking to Miss Angel Harris. Uh, she is a Hampton University summa cum laude grad uh, who also went on to pursue her law degree at Georgetown University. Now, she currently resides in New Orleans as a member of the Louisiana State Bar, where she serves as senior legal counsel for the, or with the Justice Collaborative. Now, She puts in a ton of work to help, I would say, the voiceless people have a voice. Um, She's previously served with the NAACP, the ACLU, and the Public Defender's Office. Um, And I believe she is considered an expert on criminal justice and civil rights issues. If you will, please welcome Miss Angel Harris to the show. How you doing?
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really odd, you know, being on a a, a podcast with the two of you as adults. Um,
1: <laughs> and you use that I'm term like, loosely. Like
3: grown, grown, like yeah, for real.
1: <laughs> she said, "I'm doing fantastic." <laughs> I was thinking about that. I'm like, man, it's been so long. We are adults. We 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 look the same. I feel the same, but we have definitely changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome. It, it is truly a pleasure having you. And, and you know, one of the reasons we wanted to get you on is because you have a powerful platform that you are standing on right now. And we wanted to help support that platform and get, you know, your principles, your values out there. Um, our audience isn't huge, but every little bit counts to support, you know, our people. So do this for us. We we bring guests on the show to Help others identify their purpose in life. So, what I would love to hear is give us your journey, uh, kind of fill in some of the gaps. How did you get to where you are now?
3: Wow. Um... I would say my journey actually began very, very young. I knew at a very young age that I was going to be a lawyer. In fact, I said I was going to be Thurgood Marshall. Um, mm. <laughs> I have said that from the beginning. I remember that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was in the law magnet program at West Orange High School. Like anybody who knows me knows that I was like Thurgood Marshall. That's that's who I'm going to be. Um, and I would say that I was going to be the first Black Um, woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, which I can still be that because we don't have one yet. (laughs) um, But yeah, so I've always had a passion for, I guess I've always been a legal nerd, even when I was a child. Um, And that just grew further and further. And I began to really learn about the specific issues um, that were going on in the criminal justice system as I went through, you know, college and, and in law school. And during my college years, I started learning more about public defenders and like what that really meant. Because growing up, I didn't know like what that was. Um, And then when I found out that there were groups of people who were basically sacrificing a law firm salary to help individuals who couldn't afford lawyers. I was thinking, wow, like that's something I would like to do. And people, of course, thought I was crazy. They're like, why would you waste a Georgetown law degree and not get, you know, because when you're coming out of a firm, you're making six figures. Mm. When I came out of law school and I was a public defender, I was making $32,000. And so that's crazy when people are like, you have a law degree. I mean, I was fine because I was single, you know, I didn't have bills or things. So that for me wasn't a huge sacrifice, but it is why you don't necessarily see, unfortunately, a lot of people of color who take the path as a public defender because they can't afford to. Mm -hmm. And so I came from a place of privilege. Like I grew up middle class, you know, so that wasn't, but some of my classmates, they didn't have that luxury. They had families, they had people that they needed to take care of. So I tell people sometimes it was easy for me to follow my passion because of the position that I was in in my life. But I also just really... Cared about the issues and and was just sort of tired of us having the same conversations around injustices and that fuel just began to burn and burn and burn Mm. in my career. So I, as I stated, I started as a public defender in Orleans parish. um, And that's where I was really introduced to the direct impact of the criminal court system on Mm. black communities. And that's when I saw families torn apart. I saw communities torn apart. And it it just blew my mind. And I had large caseloads. I worked also in Calcasieu Parish, which is three hours west of New Orleans. And at that point, when I was working at Calcasieu Parish, my caseload was 500 cases. And when I say 500 cases, that's open and active cases. So something could have happened on any of those cases. There were days when I literally um, a 100 cases in one day. And so the frustration with that, like the passion for my clients, but the frustration that I had to deal with 100 clients and really trying to prioritize and make sure that I was giving them the representation that they needed um, made me sort of shift a little bit. And that's when I went to the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project, where I did capital work. And so while I went from 500 cases to three cases, I was really then literally dealing with people's lives and Mm -hmm. I was doing appellate work. And so it almost felt like the pressure was even more elevated, even though I didn't have as many clients, but I had clients who were currently sitting on death row and had death warrants against them. and just once again being exposed to even more problems in the system and I went to the NAACP legal defense and educational fund to do more impact litigation because I'm like okay I'm doing this direct representation let's start really focusing on the system let's change the system let's push back let's you know put pressure um, on the system as a whole and so that you know, really motivated me. And I had an opportunity at the uh, Legal Defense Fund to also do education work and you know, disciplinary disparities and, and really just working with community groups, which is what I absolutely loved and still love to this day. And at the Justice Collaborative, I focused more on the policy side of things, but I'm still working with community groups. Then I decided, <laughs> Uh, sometimes I think foolishly to run for criminal district court judge, because, you know, for over a decade now, I've been pushing for change. And I'm start, I started and sat down to think about how can I do like directly impact the system that I've been fighting against? Mm -hmm. And being a judge, I'm in a position to change a lot of the things that I've been complaining about for over a decade. And so really from the very moment when I learned about Thurgood Marshall until now, I feel like it's become full circle. Um and so that's where why I'm here today.
2: <laughs> Great. I I I keep you've said it several times within the conversation. You've mentioned the system. Um this week I was I was listening to a podcast and um the two people on the podcast specifically said that systemic racism and systemic issues is not a thing. When you say the system, like what are some of the discrepancies that that you see from, from where you sit?
3: Absolutely. So there are lots of uh, disparities in our criminal court system. There are sentencing disparities. There are charging disparities. There are... Um, You know, when we talk about fines and fees, when we talk about bail, we don't have a system that provides equal opportunities for everyone who enters into the courtroom. Mm. What I've seen as a lawyer is that really the type of justice, and I'm saying it with air quotes, that you (laughs) see. depends on your socioeconomic status, depends on your race, depends on whether you're, allowed, whether you're able to afford to hire an attorney. Mm. Um, and so that, for me, isn't a just system. And part of my platform, you know, I have three main tenets of my platform. The first one is equal access to justice, because mm. we're not getting that. And there's enough data and statistics out there to show that that's not what's happening in the United States when it comes to our criminal court system.
2: Do you think that's more of a race thing or a, a social class thing?
3: It's absolutely a race thing. Okay. And I think that socioeconomic status plays a part, but I think that the racism in our country drives drives our system Um, more prominently than socioeconomic status because often, and and I've seen this in the courtroom, you know, certain, I don't know, certain faces are allowed into uh, specialty courts, right? Whereas there, and we know with implicit biases as well, that cases are being treated very differently. There's an mm. assumption that comes to someone's mind when there's a Black man or a Black woman that's standing before the judge. One, that assumption is that that person is a criminal off yeah. you know, off top,
2: and that, where,
3: whereas a, a white you know, individual might come before that judge and they get the benefit of the doubt. And right we see that starting from, Children, right? When we see the disciplinary actions of children, a lot of kids are being suspended and even arrested for childhood behaviors, and wow. that absolutely goes across racial lines as opposed to socioeconomic lines.
2: Yeah, and that's at, that's at the heart of policing. I mean, a lot of people will like try to focus on, well. The the percentages and the data on black people being killed by police officers is extremely low as opposed to black on black violence, but it goes back to the issue that you just said. It's the way we are police because we are perceived to be a threat from the jump, which it starts there and it only gets worse as you get caught up in the system.
1: Yeah, you've seen it way too many times where uh 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 someone who is black is a is accused of a crime and uh, uh someone who is white is accused of the exact same crime and you can see that the the disparity in the sentencing you know it, it's it, and you know what's you know what's crazy i was i was thinking about this so you talk about equal access for justice in a predominantly black community you would think that you wouldn't see a disparity towards black people, are you still seeing that even in a a predominantly black community where where our numbers should suggest we would be seen as, as giving a fair shot?
3: Oh, absolutely. There are immense uh, sentencing disparities in the criminal court system in Orleans Parish, particularly when when we're talking about sentence, like who's being sent to prison and what they're being sent to prison for is very different. And that's what people don't think about or consider. Once somebody gets a felony on their record, it changes the trajectory of their life in so many ways. It prevents them from having access to certain types of jobs it prevents them from having access to housing it prevents them from being able to get certain benefits Um, and we create and perpetuate this system and then also once you're in the system you become a target if you're on probation if you're on parole then that also continues to open the door for you to just continue to cycle in and out of our court system and so because of one the uh, the policing and patterns of policing. Because if you look at the studies and you look at the research, African-Americans are not using drugs at a higher rate than others in the population, but they're being arrested for it more often. Or they're being charged with felonies, as opposed to being charged with misdemeanors or being put into alternative programs. And so then you have someone who has a record. We have what we call the multiple offender bill in Louisiana. And once you are at a certain amount of felonies, then you are facing a life sentence for your next charge, whether that's stealing a piece of meat that happens to be a felony, but because of your prior convictions, you are now facing life. I've had clients where I was literally fighting for their lives. Because one of my clients, he had a joint underneath his hat. A police officer stopped him, they arrested him, but because of his prior convictions, he was facing life for a joint. And so when people hear that, they are just like, wait, what? That's happening. And I'm like, those aren't rare cases. Those are things that I dealt with all the time. Wow. And it's because, you know, he got. Arrested one time for a marijuana there and one time for or charged with an armed robbery when it wasn't necessarily an armed robbery, but because Mm. it's a crime of violence now labeled, Mm -hmm. then that makes you more of um, a quote unquote threat to society when in fact what the charge was wasn't an armed robbery. And so, you know, what people are being charged with also matters. And that's how it uh, adversely impacts individuals.
1: That's like I've seen uh, where posts and people talk about how can a person be arrested and only charged with resistant arrest with no other charges? Like you would, you, you, the only reason you are given that charge you, is because you told them, no, you're not going to arrest me. So it's like, what was the, what was their initial reason to stop? What was their initial mm. charge? Like, that don't make sense. Your only charge listed is resisting arrest. Resisting
2: arrest, wow. Yeah, had you not stopped me, I wouldn't have been resisting.
1: <laughs> Especially if I wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, right. Angel, you talked about three pillars of your platform and you gave us equal access to justice. What are the other two?
3: The other two um, are, are, uh, sorry, alternatives to incarceration. And when I talk about alternatives to incarceration, I'm not talking about not holding people responsible for their actions. I absolutely believe in accountability. But what I've seen throughout my career is that I would say probably more than half of the people who are entering into the criminal court system are dealing with underlying issues. Mm. Some of those issues being substance abuse, mental Mental health, uh, poverty, you know, and so when you are dealing with those, but those issues aren't being addressed, then you're going to continue to come into the system. And so when I'm talking about alternatives to incarceration, I'm talking about Dealing with those underlying issues. There are programs that are available for individuals, they're just not being sentenced to those programs. And I, and I think that there are several community based programs. And so even when I'm talking about programs, I'm not talking about Department of Corrections programs, I'm talking about community based programs Mm -hmm. that have proven to work, but we aren't sending people to those programs. Additionally, trauma, you know, in a place like New Orleans that has experienced Katrina, there's a lot of trauma that, has been, that hasn't been dealt with. And if we don't deal with it or provide people with the services they need to deal with it, then it's going to manifest in various ways. And so I think that we really need to start looking at the whole person and deciding what sentence is appropriate for that person. And most of the time, incarceration isn't going to be the appropriate sentence, particularly when we look at the fact that the majority of individuals who are incarcerated are in for nonviolent offenses. And I Sometimes I I don't like to do the dichotomy between nonviolent and violent offenses, because I think it creates this sort of division in saying, oh, we should help people who have committed nonviolent, but the people who have committed violent offenses, let's forget about them. Mm -hmm. I I don't agree with that. Um, But I do think that it's important for society to know that the majority of people who are incarcerated actually aren't even in there for what they think people are in there for. Um, the third pillar is stopping the criminalization of poverty, and I talked about this a little bit when we're talking about fines and fees and we're talking about bail. The crazy part about the bail system is the most people who are uh, incarcerated pre-trial are only incarcerated pre-trial because they can't afford to bail themselves out, and mm. so it's not really about public safety when you really think about it. Because if someone, if there are two people who, let's say it was an assault charge, and they get a $50,000 bond, the rich person gets out because they can pay the $50,000 bond. It's the same type of charge, but then because this other person can't afford to pay that bond, they are forced to stay incarcerated. They are forced to lose their jobs. They are forced to lose their homes, and in some cases lose their children because they are still incarcerated. Also, when we talk about fines and fees, Judges will sentence individuals to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. How is a person who just spent five years in prison going to pay $10,000? In fact, most people who are currently working right now wouldn't be able to pay a $10,000 fine, much less someone who's been incarcerated, lost their earning potential when they come out of prison. And so it just creates you know, this cycle of poverty. And that's what our criminal court system does. We jail people because they're poor.
1: So I got a couple of questions based on what you said. So going back to your second pillar, alternatives to incarceration, you talk about these community-based programs. You would think that, um, you would think that the court has a list of these programs that are available. But what what is the reality? Is there not a a reference guide that the court system can go to to say, all right, it, here's a program that I think this person might fit into, or this program might be able to help this person? Is, is that how it works?
3: So all judges or most judges are aware of the community-based programs, but then you have the Department of Corrections that comes in and they say, oh, we also have this program and we know that money talks right? And so the Department of Corrections gets funneled all of this money to have these programs, but they're not in the best interest of the individuals that are participating in the programs. And so part of it is the community-based programs aren't getting the resources that they need. So they are limited in how many people they can actually help. But Mm. also because of kickbacks, you know, there are judges who Get benefits from sending someone to a DLC program as opposed to sending them to, you know, an Operation Restoration or or some other type of community-based program.
1: Freaking feeder system, we know it exists mm-hmm. uh, and there's proof of it. Um, wow. So, uh, in terms of stopping criminaliz- criminalization of poverty. Um, mm-hmm. You you stated that you know majority of people right now couldn't pay a ten thousand dollar fine without getting charged or anything else, um, and a person's economic situation and status prior to running into the law or into the courts is not one that you know is completely responsible or the responsibility doesn't fall completely on the courts. So. How, how do you help someone who is already in a bad situation? What, I guess what do you intend to do if, if elected to, to judge?
3: When we're talking about bail, I think that there should be, there should be a presumption of a non-incarcerative we're talking about pretrial, right? Non-incarcerative solution. Because really what the bail is supposed to do is to ensure that a person will return to court. There is nothing that shows that you paying a $10,000 bond will ensure that you will return to court. Mm. Also, there are 10 statutory factors in Louisiana that a judge is supposed to consider when they are posting bail. Most of the time, the judges maybe look at two. Of those factors and so you know those factors are a person's background a person's history um, not only their criminal background but like their background as a whole you know and their status in the community and, and whether they have a job and whether you know but that's not even the discussion that's being had some judges and this is part of my issue and and one of the things that I talk a lot about is reimagining our system, reimagining a system that's rooted in rehabilitation, not mass incarceration. And so when we are looking at that, like what is the benefit really of us incarcerating a person pre-trial when they've shown to not be a threat to society in any type of way? And just rubber stamping. There are some judges who no matter if you come into their courtroom with a battery, you are going to get this type of bond. They if they don't look at the facts, they don't look at the person, they don't consider any of those things. And so they're just moving through. And I also talk about this conveyor belt of justice. They are just pushing people through this system and saying this is what I've been doing and this is what I'm going to continue to do, but not really thinking about if it's benefiting the community or society.
1: They don't care. They don't care. Uh, folks, if you haven't noticed, Angel is on point with her stuff. Uh, yes, <laughs> this is this is one bad sister. She don't play. And she's been like that forever. So it, uh, just know that if you come with some facts or, or, or counter argument, uh, be prepared. <laughs> she, she's going to bring it.
2: <laughs> yeah, this this conversation, it's not going over my head, but it's you know, like, OK, let me just listen here. All right. So how how did you end up in uh, Louisiana, Angel?
3: (laughs) So I did, um, at Georgetown, they have an alternative spring break. And so I I worked a week at the Orleans Public Defender's Office during Uh, my spring break of 3L year. And the attorney that I was working for that week was actually also part of the hiring and training committee. And he was like, so what are your plans? I said, oh, I'm going to be a public defender. And he's like, would you like to interview on Friday? So this is Wednesday of that week. He's like, would you like to interview on Friday? And I was like, sure. Um, and, you know, interview, got the job. But also while I was here during that week, I really just fell in love with the city. Like there is no other city. City like New Orleans, like no no other city. The people of New Orleans are amazing and they have just been so great and embracing me and sort of bringing me into the fold. And there's just this like spirit of community about, you know, folks in New Orleans that I really love. And people talk a lot about the resilience of the people of New Orleans. But one of the things that for me is just like this, you know, self-sufficiency, right? You know, after Katrina, they were left to fend for themselves. Right. And so I I think I I like using self-sufficiency more than resiliency because Mm -hmm. resiliency to me is, you know, they were forced to be resilient because Mm -hmm. they were forgotten. Right. But then you have people who are like, okay, that's fine. We got this. And I love that attitude from folks in New Orleans.
1: Yeah. You can tell that there's a huge sense of pride within, um, the New Orleans uh, community, you know, um, I, I I wanted to ask you this question because I, I heard you uh, somewhere else speak about the resilience and perseverance and self-determination of, you know, the community mm-hmm. and thinking about, you know, the city of New Orleans and what it went through with Hurricane Katrina. What, what do you see in the people um, with regards to them taking responsibility for building the community
3: Mm um i think so new orleans what i love about new orleans and you know i mentioned some of these community programs is that they really are like we because no one else is doing this for us we will do it and so we'll create a program and the program that we'll create is something that we have in our backyard because we don't have the resources to have a huge building but we'll have 50 people in our backyard and create a mentoring program and create, you know, the, there are people in the neighborhood that are feeding their neighborhood, right? There are people who are building grocery stores because there isn't fresh produce. And so in the Lower Ninth Ward, after Hurricane Katrina, there weren't any grocery stores that had fresh produce. So there was a man who start who converted a corner store into a grocery store to make mm. sure that his community had fresh vegetables. And so that's what the people in New Orleans do. You know, they will open up their their front yard, their backyard, their porch for whoever needs it. You know, and unfortunately, sometimes they aren't being given you know the additional resources that they need to expand those programs. But they make do with what they have, and that's what I love about New Orleans.
1: Tell us about some of the some more interesting people that you met because I've seen that you traveled a lot and you you been a part of a lot of organizations and groups. Tell us about some of those, those interesting people.
3: Um, I mean, I for me, I think my greatest experiences, one, you know, are, are experiences that I've had with like my clients and their families, but also working with community groups and community organizers. When I started working with community organizers, I will honestly say that changed the way that I uh, functioned mm-hmm. as an attorney. Um, community organizers have this sense of uh, what do they say? A lot of them that I've talked to, they say, "I want to organize myself out of a job." So, like, their whole purpose is empowering the community mm. and giving them the tools that they need in order to, you know, accomplish. It's like here, here's what I've learned and here are some of the lessons and like I'm going to share them with you and I'm going to help you create that in your community I don't need to be the person that does that and as a lawyer we are often taught right like we are the ones with the answers we are the ones that like like you need me to be here and I have taken the approach of I am helping out the community in the way that they need me to help I'm not directing what needs to happen I'm sitting down and having conversations with community groups. And they are telling me what's going on in their community. And then I will use, because I think we have to use a multifaceted approach when we are talking about changing systems. And so part of that is really having directly impacted and community groups come in and have their say. You know, There have been times when, because I'm a lawyer, I get invited to a meeting, but the community group doesn't. And so what I do is I am telling the person that I'm in the meeting with, one you should have invited this community group because they're doing amazing things but i'm going to tell you what their demands are since you decided not to invite them right and so but you know when i think of of groups that are doing amazing and great things in new orleans there's a group called daughters beyond incarceration it was started so it's a mentoring group for um, young women or young girls, actually, whose parents are incarcerated. And it started by a woman whose father was incarcerated most of her life. And so she knows what it feels like and the stigma that comes with having an incarcerated parent. And so she brought together a group of young women and really is doing great things with them and letting them know, like, you don't have to be stigmatized. You can be proud of who you are, hold your head up. You can also be proud of your parent that's incarcerated. And they make sure that they stay in communication and connection with their parents. So that's an amazing group. There's a coalition of folks in New York that I've worked with, you know, they are called Communities United for Police Reform, CPR. Um, They are amazing. And just seeing those coalitions and those groups come together and how they work together and function has been, for me, life changing, quite honestly. It's not the lawyers that I've met in my career. It's really been the people who have been like boots on the ground that have changed the way that I function.
1: Listen, I'm reading the book, The Gumbo Coalition by Mark Morial, the mayor mm-hmm. from New Orleans, and to hear him talk about, you know, the coalitions and the boots on the ground and the community organizers coming together to, you know, in, in the city of New Orleans, bring about reform, the same reform that you're talking about. And as I hear you talking, it's, it's I guess... I'm trying not to be disheartened at the fact that you're still fighting what sounds like the same fight that he was doing back in 94, you know, with all the corruption that was going on, uh, in in being there and learning about the history of New Orleans and the government and policing, um, has there been change? Has it improved or is it still just as bad, um, from what you can hear from, you know, elders who've been around?
3: So there there has been some change, um, but there's still a lot that needs to to, to happen. Um and I think part of it though is people are afraid to, so you have some groups, right, that, are, that aren't afraid to speak out and do it, but you still have people who are afraid to shake things up because mm-hmm. they're in, and when I say people are afraid to shake things up, I'm actually talking about elected officials, people who are afraid to lose their coveted position, right? Yeah. I don't want to push back too much because I've reached this mantle piece and I don't want to lose my spot. And that is the frustrating part, It's the people, unfortunately, it's the people who are in power that are perpetuating this. Um, And I, I do think that that tide is changing, but I think people have to recognize the importance of local elections. And they have to really participate in that process and get elected officials in who are willing to shake things up and really change things and push back on what's going on. But there has definitely been progress and things are moving forward, but there's still a lot of work to do. Because you have to think what we're dealing with is like hundreds of years of a system that's been created. Like the system is working exactly the way it was set up to yes, work. So exactly. We are talking about taking apart something that's been established and working the way that it was built to work. So, we, unfortunately, then, it takes time.
1: We talked about that, uh, Shane, well, a, a few episodes ago, where mm-hmm. like the system is working exactly how it's supposed to work. That's that's the thing, and people in power continue to perpetuate the problem mm-hmm. over and over and over again, and they perpetuate the problem. Problem being the system. They're they're functioning in it like you called uh, the conveyor belt. These mm-hmm. these people in power are the workers on the conveyor belt.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: That's crazy. Um, you started, you talked about community organizers. Uh, I was doing a little bit of a deep dive. You started a group, I believe, Black Women Lawyers Collective. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this.
3: So the Black Women Lawyers Collective, we, so for lawyers, we have to do what are called um, continuing legal education hours in order to keep our, our licenses. Um, mm-hmm. And so with the Black Women Lawyers Collective, me and a friend of mine, Mia Weeks, we created it to um, put together CLEs, continuing legal education courses, um, but ones that are run and taught by Black women. Um, Because when you go to these CLEs, what you'll often see is you'll have, you know, white male instructors, there isn't a racial analysis, there's no analysis around the intersectionality between, you know, uh, being a woman and being black and, and being a woman being black and being poor, like all of those intersectional pieces weren't being dealt with. And so we decided to create the Black Women Lawyers Collective, one for educational purposes for CLEs, but also as a space. For Black women lawyers to come together to encourage each other, to lift each other up and really just create a space for us um, and how we represent, you know, Black women and girls, whether it's through the criminal court system or the civil system, but it really is just to create a network for Black women lawyers.
1: Let's get to the nitty gritty. What are the challenges you face as a Black female attorney? (laughs)
3: Um, I would say the major challenge is people underestimating me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a fuel for me. Uh, (laughs) I love when I walk into a space and, you know, one, they assume that I'm not, like, walk into a courtroom and they assume I'm, like, the secretary or the assistant. And then I, you know, go to the table and argue a motion, and then everyone's eyes are stretched like, wait, she knows what she's talking about? Like, and she won that motion? Or, you know, when people are like, so what I do intentionally is when someone, you know, asks me, like, oh, what school? I'll say, oh, I went to to law school in DC, you know, like not saying the name of it. And they're like, oh, where? And then I say Georgetown, and they're like, oh. And I'm like, I mean, there are black people who go to Georgetown. Um, And so, you know, just just for sports. Right, exactly, exactly. And so I, I, there is a lot of underestimating, but there's also, Just the barrier of um, (laughs) when you are a Black woman who has opinions and thoughts, which I have a lot of, and I share them. uh, That's
2: a lot of people off.
3: (laughs) You know, people try to, one, uh, label you as like emotional or, you know, they're like, oh, you know, calm down. And it's like, I'm, there's nothing about me that's not calm, you know, or they try to gaslight you, you know, so you have that. And I think that's the the frustrating part about it. Um, Just but really just like the underestimating and the microaggressions that come along with, um, you know, being a black woman and and having to deal with those. Um, And you you get it from all sides, quite honestly. Um, And so that can be very frustrating when you're like, okay, I'm trying to do something here or, you know, and even During this campaign, there are because I'm running against an incumbent. So he's been sitting on the bench since 2011. And so I have had people actually have the audacity to ask me, why are you running against an incumbent. And so I said, the, my entire platform is about reimagining a system. And if someone is perpetuating the status quo, then that's the person I'm going to challenge. Mm. You know. But they are asking, you know, basically like, why aren't you going the easy route, or why are you trying to, you know, change the way that we've been doing things? And and I'm like, it's not working. If you were telling right. me that the system was working, then I understand your question. But we all know that our system is not working the way that it needs to work. And so why, why ask me that question? And that's not a question, I know, it's not a question that they would ask a man, especially a white man, why they're doing that. Or, you know, I hear from people, oh, you know, everything you're saying is great. And you're so smart, you know, and they're like, but you know, he's been there since 2011. And for me, that's the reason why he needs to get out because nothing has changed. And so, you know, it's, it's like, how dare I try to, you know, uh, do something that they haven't anointed me to do, right? Mm. Like, I, you know, I'm supposed to get permission from them in order to do it. Um, And I think that's something, you know, as a woman that happens often, it's like, oh, wait, you're making moves by yourself. Like, who did you consult with? Who did you talk to? Who did you get permission from? Um, So I would say those are the major, major issues.
1: Man, that's dope. You know, and at the end of the day, change doesn't come about unless you go against the status quo. You know, right. um, you know, you see these incumbents um, and it, it makes me think about, you know, judges in particular. You know, they, you said that they have a particular way that they've always done things in terms of sentencing and whatnot. But do they ever think about on the back end? what was the impact of all those same decisions? And I don't think so. I think it's dealing with the case in front of me now, making a a decision that's usually preconceived uh, and then do it again, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if it's getting me the perks that I've always gotten and and being able to live the status that I've been able to live, you know?
3: I mean, it's a lack of empathy, right? Like they aren't thinking about the people that are coming in front of them as people they start to just you know it's it's like this auto mode and that's the problem and i think as a public defender i know what it's like to stand next to a person right like that's what i am bringing to this bench and so there's also been talk because there are a lot of i think there's seven of us who are either public defenders or former public defenders that are running for judge this cycle And I think we bring a different perspective. Generally, what you'll see is that former prosecutors are on the bench. And so, you know, and not saying that a prosecutor can't be a good judge, but I think it's a very different experience when it comes to, like, the empathy and really thinking about individuals that, you know, a public defender brings to the table. Um, And even just like being trauma-informed, like having trauma-informed criminal justice responses is essential and vital. And, you know, I learned a lot about that when I became a death penalty lawyer, because you have to learn about trauma and and the impact of trauma on an individual. Um, And so I think by doing that, I not only help, you know, um, or look at it when I think about defendants, but also about victims, because there are victims who are often, because they don't come from the, same, the right neighborhood or they don't fit the model of a perfect victim, they also are being disrespected and dis- disregarded um, mm. in the criminal court system.
1: So you mentioned several former public defenders or current public defenders are, are running right now to become judges. Mm-hmm. Did you all band together and decide to do this all at once?
3: No, I think it was just a matter of people just being tired, because there were a lot of sections of court that were open this cycle around. And so I think they were like, "Now is the time. I mean, obviously, like, we've seen each other and like had discussions, but it wasn't like a let's do this, you know, but we're all very proud and happy that, you know, we're doing it.
1: And now is the time more than ever amongst all the change that's happening in in the nation right now, you know, and I think to the people that you mentioned that have asked you a question why you are running versus an incumbent. It's like, take a step back from your 50 foot view and look at 50,000 feet of what's happening right now. Change is the conversation it is what is on everybody's mind and if you are speaking up against change at this point you you have blinders on right now like you questioning change is is what's outside of the norm right now Mm -hmm. it has to happen it it has to um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some other projects you i was you got a podcast going i (laughs) saw you got girl trek going you got black (laughs) history boot camp you did like Um, when do you have time to do anything?
3: (laughs) Um, I, I feel like I have to stay moving. So COVID has slowed me down, um, because normally I would also, as you mentioned this before, would be traveling as well. Um, (laughs) but because of COVID, I have not been on an international trip this entire year, which is crazy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, (laughs) because I was trying to do at least one a year for the past few years, Um, just to, like, get away and experience. Um, But I think for me, I just like staying busy, um, and it motivates me. And when you, like, the activities that I do, like, Girl Trek is amazing. It's a, you know, group of Black women who are coming together, uh, you know, and and bringing attention around staying healthy. um, But also it has, like, a civil rights sort of base, right? And Harriet Tubman is the inspiration of Girl Trek. You know when they talk about how many miles Harriet uh, Tubman walked when she was freeing the slaves, and so why not give 30 minutes of your day to walking for your own freedom? You know, and so that was something that really resonated with me, um, and why I joined Girl Trek. It's just such an amazing platform, um, and and like walking is a de-stressor for me. Like going out for a walk, I can clear my head. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like staying busy. I will also add, you know, in addition to the podcast and all of that, uh, during COVID, I started doing Dungeons and Dragons, um, <laughs> which is very odd. It's an all-black women group of Dungeons and Dragons players. So wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tell us more about your podcast. Uh, what's the title and what's the subject matter? Where can we find it and all that good stuff?
3: So we are on a bit of a hiatus because I'm running for judge. Okay. Uh, we thought we would be able to do it while I was doing it, but it's, Yeah, Um, but it's called Favorite Fair. Um, It's me and a good friend of mine, Desiree Anderson. And so it's weekly conversations between a Christian revolutionary, myself, and a spiritual heathen, my friend Desiree. And we just talk about, you know, our faith. We talk about life. We talk about racial justice issues. We talk about everything. We talk about social media, Twitter, you know, all of that. Um, And the reason why we started it was because we... One, we felt like we had a, a voice that wasn't necessarily out there. You know, you have like these Christian women that are sort of navigating through life, but two friends that have two very different not outlooks on Christianity but the way that we function in like this Christian world. So, you know, my co-host Desiree calls herself a spiritual heathen where it's like she attends church and you know, but she's you know, can also and she won't mind me saying this, can be a little ratchet, right? Like <laughs> and so you know, and, and she's full, she's fully fine with me saying that. She said it herself on the podcast. Um, but really in how we um you know, function together as friends and navigate through this space um, through a Christian lens um, and and like unapologetically so. Because I, I think we are in a time where there are people who maybe grew up as Christians and have now sort of moved away from their faith for lots of reasons. And, you know, and in a lot of cases, there is a lot of hypocrisy within the church. And in our podcast, we talk about that, right? Like we're very honest about, you know, some of the shortcomings of the church, but we've chosen to stay in the Christian faith. And so, you know, in our, uh, so it's called Favorite fair. And then we also do different portions where we talk about, um Current events and and things like that, um, just so people can also stay informed. And and I think both of our careers also go towards you know like racial justice. And so that's why that ties into it. And so it's a, a perfect sort of combination. Um,
2: you yeah, said it's, it's really
3: fun doing it too. So. Yeah, I know we're
2: gonna have to check it out. You said a Christian revolutionary. <laughs> Elaborate on that a little bit. That's awesome.
3: <laughs> so you know so i when i think about um because i have been using the term christian revolutionary for for a while like and when i think about it like i don't want to (laughs) so i'm trying to figure out the best way to say it because for me jesus was a christian revolutionary right like he was a person who was about social change, about social justice. And I feel like the church doesn't necessarily embrace those values anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why not? Mm -hmm. And so when I, because you know, Jesus went and like, he was flipping tables, right? Like he wasn't this docile, like, he's like, no, this is not the way that it should be. And also was about treating people, treating everyone, you know? The, with yeah. respect and with dignity. Yeah. And you have people who, and the, and part of the reason why I started talking about this Christian revolutionary thing is because um, ta Coates, he, at some points before, would criticize Christians and say that they were um, weak, right? And so one of the things that I started saying was, you know, well, I'm just as much of a revolutionary as ta Coates, right? Like I was like, I'll be that Christian revolutionary. And so that's kind of where that came from, sort of dispelling this myth that as a Christian, I can't challenge the systems that are currently at work, that I can do both at the same time. Because I think some people think they have to choose between the two. Um, I'm not all like, you know, kumbaya, let's just love everyone no I'm going to hold you accountable but I can do that in in a Christian way
1: you know what's crazy when I think back as I as I hear you talk you know going back to us being grown grown (laughs) I think about the first day getting on the bus for ninth grade law magnet, and you sitting up front and being that angel to see who you are now is totally different Here, tell us this, so we try to we try to get to know the individual um and you know what inspired them. You told us a lot, which I think speaks to who you are, but I'd love to hear you know some major events that have influenced you coming up who who inspired you in addition to third Good Marshall
3: um i would I mean I definitely say that my mother has had a huge impact on my life. Like when you talk about strong black women, like that is her. When you talk about a person that that's unapologetic, (laughs) like she is unapologetically her and raised me to do the same. Um, And I think often, you know, as black girls growing up, you were almost told to like shrink yourself. But my mother was like, no, you walk into a room and, and take up that whole space. Right. And so I, that definitely has impacted the way that I I function through life. Like, I am not shrinking myself for anyone. I'm taking up space. But I'm also providing space for other people, right? So I think there's a difference between people who just take up space and don't allow other people um, to have their own space as well. Um, So I I would definitely say my mother is a person that's been very influential in in who I am, for sure.
1: For sure. Hey, hey, Ma, it's been a long time since i seen you, but Miss Angel, good to, good to hear from you. Good to see you again. Um, <laughs> what about um, as far as your travels? You traveled internationally. Coolest place you visited?
3: Oh, that's hard. I've been lots of places. Um, huh. I would say Japan is the coolest place. Um, I've
1: heard that from a lot of people.
3: It's an awesome place for so many reasons. One, well, Japan's very clean, right? And and I loved it. Like the subway was like amazingly clean and they're very like orderly. Like things are just, for there to be so many people there, it functions very well. But the food is amazing. And you know, they're, all about technology and and they're very innovative. And so I really enjoyed my experience in Japan. And people talk about the subway being um, difficult to navigate, but it's actually very easy because they have a system. And once you know what the system is, it's very easy to navigate it. But I I loved my experience in Japan. I would definitely go back there. Um, I'd also say one of the, so one of the places that a lot of people don't travel to Um, is Martinique. And I think they should. Um, It's fairly inexpensive. It's beautiful. Um, The only thing is that they are a French speaking island. Um, I don't speak French, but I was able to navigate. um, And so that's a place that I would recommend that people go to. I had a very nice experience there and people don't often go there. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean, I've been all over. I mean, I studied at the University of Cape Town. Like I, so I've been to lots of places. Um, yeah. So I feel like I'm doing all of those in injustice, but I would say Japan, it's a very cool experience. Martinique, I think pe- more people should go there. Um,
1: Martinique, but, I believe I saw in one of your posts is the place where they have the statues of um, mm-hmm. the 40, it's a representation of the 40, slaves who died? If mm-hmm. I'm not correct.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a um there was an accident and 40 of the slaves died drowned in the water and so there are these statues and it's just an amazing when you walk up to it it's breathtaking. Like and and when people say that like the you know people are like oh it's breathtaking like it's literally like when you walk up to it you're just like wow. Like you just feel, you know, something when you're there. And they are very um, in tune with like their history there. Mm. So that's a, they yeah, so that monument is there. But I've been, yeah, no, I've been a lot of places. It's been cool. I I prefer warmer places. I don't travel to cold places, though. So I will say that, like that is not on my list. (laughs) So I I didn't like Spain because when I went to Spain, it was cold. It actually snowed when I got Mm. off the, I was like, this is not supposed to happen. It wasn't in the forecast. Mm. Um, so Spain, mm, I don't
1: like it. Yeah. I said, I want to travel more, obviously once, uh, things, uh, settle down a bit, but I definitely want to get out more and and see different parts of the world. There's so many Mm. different experiences that we don't know about. And those experiences equate to exposure, which then equates to a broader sense of perspective. And I think that that's important. Um, your, your platform, what do you need from the community to help you get elected? What can we do?
3: Um, I need people to show up to the polls. Like, that's what I need. I need people to exercise their right to vote. You know, early voting is October 20th through the 27th, and then, you know, election day is November 3rd. Because if we don't go to the polls and actually cast our ballot, then nothing's going to happen. Um, So, just really spreading the word, having this conversation, really holding people accountable, and, you know, when I get elected, making sure that I am doing the things that I said, like, I want to be held accountable. I also want there to be systems of transparency put into place, you know, in the courtroom, the data about the sentences that are coming out of my courtroom that should be publicly available. Um, You know, and I think that, the community needs to become comfortable sort of demanding those things, because we give like a level of deference and respect. But what we need to recognize is that the community, they're the ones that are directly impacted. Mm-hmm. And so yes, you know, judges have a position are in a position of power, but they're supposed to be working for the community, and that you have the right to hold them accountable. So, you know, really getting the, the vote out, I, you know, volunteers to help with So we're doing contactless canvassing because of COVID. Um, So we're placing door hangers and we're doing other activities, you know, and it's just great to have a group of people who are, because I have a citywide election. And so I have to touch a lot of door, like not physically, but, you know, metaphorically touch a lot of people and make sure that my name and my information is out there. So spreading the word is really key.
2: What have you learned so far since making the decision to run? What have you learned about campaigning life you as a person since making that decision?
3: So I always said that I wouldn't get into politics. Um, (laughs) Me too. But then it's like, well, to be a judge, you have to be elected. Um, Unless I get like appointed like a federal judge, you know. Uh Um, And so I, everything that I knew that I would dislike about politics is true, right? Like (laughs) having to um, go in front, like, really playing the game because I'm like what I'm about change like I'm really here for change I'm yeah. not trying to play games I'm not trying to manipulate people and just seeing people who are being so manipulative is really it's it's gross to me gotcha. right like <laughs> I, I can't think of a you know a better word of describing it it's just really disgusting to me I understand, um, yeah. and you know and and so that's That's what I've kind of, I knew that, but that really was something that I was like, I I don't enjoy that. Seeing it in
2: the flesh kind of just was like, yeah,
3: gotcha. And and it's something that I'm like, man, like more people need to know just how gross this system is (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and and really, you know, know that some of it or a lot of it has to do with money when we're talking about like um, their ballots that kind of go out from groups, but Candidates are paying to have their name on that ballot,
0: mm. and
3: so it's like I don't feel comfortable doing that. Also, my you know we fund you know we're fundraising and doing those things, but I'm not you know <laughs> I don't have this huge bu- budget yeah. for my campaign. This is really a grassroots campaign um, that we're running. So you telling me that you want ten thousand dollars for my name to be on a ballot. Like that makes me very uncomfortable. Um, but the community, you know, the community doesn't know that the community doesn't see that. Yeah. And I, I talk about, you know, maybe after this is over writing something about this process, because when we think about, cause we, we always say, right. Oh, more people should be running for office. More people should be doing this. And now that I'm a part of it, I see why it's so deterred. Like it's, it's a deterrent for people One, you have to just have a lot of money in order to even for me to qualify like to sign up and say I wanted to be a judge I had to pay $600. So think about a person who's running for maybe not judge but for some other like city council or something um, who wants to run a grassroots campaign they're going to up front have to have at least $600 to do that Or gather a certain amount of signatures. And so I think what I have learned, you know, myself is just when I am saying to people, because I've been one of those people that's like, we need more people to be running for this. Like people need to step up, Um, really just having more compassion around it, but figuring out, like for me, figuring out how we change that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if I am going to say we need younger people to be running for city council, we need younger people to be running for school board, then how am I going to assist them and help them do that? And Mm -hmm. so I think that's what that's one of the challenges that I'm giving to myself is that going forward, you know, I am going to try to seek out ways to make that process easier for the people who would actually be good at the job right because politics is so gross the good people often are deterred from doing it the people who are in it for the right reasons are like i don't want to deal with that and i was one of those people for a very long time like Ugh, politics don't want to do it but then it's like okay if we want things to change we're going to have to do it
2: so what what is your message to the ones for the good people that don't want to get involved but even don't want to even participate like i am um <clears throat> i am not somebody texted me last night about you know i hope uh the democrats have your vote and i just was honest with them i said yeah i'm gonna vote i'm not enthused about it um mm-hmm. i i am borderline not wanting to so what is your your message to people who don't want to participate simply because we all know the game in which mm-hmm. politics are played
3: for me i think if enough of us create so okay so i'll start with the sort of two-party system right Mm -hmm. like we know like what you've mentioned um about not being necessarily enthusiastic about the democratic nominees but knowing probably that you're not going to go the republican route right absolutely but i think what we need to start doing is start creating what we want right so okay i'll use the example of um Mississippi Jackson Mississippi Mm -hmm. so their mayor um he actually is a third party candidate like he's the Malcolm X grassroots project so they are being run by someone who's not a Republican not a Democrat he's part of the grassroots the Malcolm X grassroots project if we started doing that in our local communities then that changes the narrative like this whole thing when I'm talking about like like I'm talking about this like radical like changing of the way that we've been doing it. And I think we just have to take that step and say, this is the way that it currently is, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. And so I think that's what we need to start pushing, but we need to start being, um, I mean it's going to take a lot of us right it's going to be a collective we can't do it alone mm-hmm. and so that's the thing that i've been saying to people is like i too don't like the way the system is working or the way that our political uh structure is but let's push for it and let's work together in trying to create like a viable third party let's really start pushing for you know an alternative to what we are currently doing um but i completely feel the frustration but I, I think the only way we're going to change it is that we come in and change it. Mm-hmm. But we have to come up with that solution, right? Like we can't just say it's not working, but we are not coming up with the solution.
2: Solution, Yeah, be more uh, solution focused.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> All right. So in, in taking us out of the show, we I mean, we appreciate you coming on um, and talking with us and more importantly, just educating us. Uh, we always try to end our show with a quote, and I thought it was fitting that uh, we pick a quote from Third Good Marshall. And I'd love for you to speak on how it resonates with you. So Third Good Marshall, Marshall says, "Each of you, as an individual, must pick your own goals. Listen to others, but do not become a blind follower. Do not become a blind follower. How does that resonate with you and your campaign and what?" what you're seeking to accomplish?
3: Um, I think it's you know, what we were sort of just talking about, you know, where you don't just blindly follow. If we are noticing that there's a problem with something, then let's start changing that, right? Like that's the, that's the main thing in my main platform is the way that this is, is not working for us. So we need to change it. And so that's why I talk about this like reimagining, like, no, we need to step away. And when we talk about, you know, and we didn't really talk about this that much here the conversations around like defunding the police and you know all of that that is something that for so many people just they can't wrap their minds around it because it's the way that it's been done but we know that it's not working and mm-hmm. so if we know something's not working what do we do when we have you know something if your vacuum cleaner is no longer working you don't keep it in your house right you throw it away and you buy a new one yep. so why don't we do that with the I feel like we don't give ourselves enough credit to change um, or the power to change. I
2: think the problem is it's kind of like what we were talking about with um, kind of like Jesus It's not that we don't have the power is we just can't conceive it because we, it works for us. It doesn't you know what I'm saying? Like the people that are fighting the change to defund the police, the reimagining how we do things like when we were talking about it, I was saying, well, maybe defund the police was just bad verbiage. Maybe it could have been reimagined the police, but that just sounds kind of wimpy. So the problem is we can't see that it's not working for us everybody. And when I say we see it, Mm -hmm. because we're the ones affected the most.
1: Who it's not working for. Who
2: it's not working for. But the people that it's working for, it becomes a conversation of, why should I change what's working for me, just for others? And that's why when I thought you're Christian revolutionary, that's why I thought it was just so amazing, because it ties together, because there's a whole lot of selfishness that is impeding the change, and really holding us back from taking the steps that we need to take
1: yeah Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
1: well awesome man another dope conversation thank you so much angel for joining us it's been a pleasure sitting down and rocking with you uh listeners as always go live life on purpose we appreciate it we out
3: thank you for having me
2: no problem you're awesome